You are listening to Playback, a Variety podcast. I'm your host, Variety Awards editor Chris Tapley. March today in South Central. Oh, yeah, MLK Day. Yeah. Well, of course, but yeah, yeah I didn't realize uh, yeah. you were there. Yeah. How was that? No, it was good. It was necessary. It's like you know. Indeed, wearing the Times Up shirt. As I said, we're already recording. Just so you know, um, we have Dee Reese, the writer and director of Mudbound, here with us today. I'm going to have my phone out, and I swear it's just me looking at questions. All right, cool. Not checking text messages. <laughs> Candy crushing over there. So you were just down at the uh, march. How was that? It was earlier. No, it was good. It was just like necessary, you know, so that the people are, act, are, are active today or doing something, just being visible. So there's many different organizations there. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I want to start by talking about uh, the big recent news for this film, which is Rachel's nomination from the ASC, the first female DP nominated by the American Society of Cinematographers, which I think is a long time coming, obviously. Uh, but, uh, you know, I didn't know if she would make it either because, you know, you never know how things are going to go in the season. But this great work was recognized. And what did you think about that and kind of the history that she made? Well, it's well-deserved. You know, I'm glad that people are recognizing, you know, the craft of it and not kind of like, you know, making, you know, decisions about who's seen based on who they are or, you know, tokenism. You know, mm-hmm. Rachel's work is on the screen. So I'm really glad for that. You know, you can go to Sandy Sissel you can go to Ellen Curris, you go to Rachel Morris and women have been making interesting images for a long time. So it's great that finally her craft is recognized and that she gets the uh, recognition that she's due. Yeah. Yeah. Uh- what brought you to Rachel? I mean, I think you've worked, you worked with different DPs on the other two films. Bradford on the first one, mm-hmm. which is uh, he's one of the greats working. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think probably You're From Pariah is where he really launched, launched yeah. there. Um, amazing work. Did he win a Sundance Prize? For he, did, he did, yeah. yeah, right? yeah. And then you worked with someone else for Bessie and then now Rachel. So what brought you to, to Rachel's work and working with her? Yeah, I'd seen her actually. I'd known her from like years back when I lived in LA. It was like a very kind of small, like lesbian, you know, like scene or whatever. So I'd known her just like socially, like at a distance. And then I'd seen her work in Fruitvale Station. Mm-hmm. And actually, it was Lena Motto. I was just finishing Bessie, and he mentioned her because she was going to do confirmation for them, or I'd done confirmation. He's like, oh, you should know her. She's great. And so linked with her because of that. And um, yeah, we worked together, and she's able to like really kind of translate, you know, the images and just kind of like the characters I had in mind and really just getting those, you know, getting up on the screen. So, yeah, she's great. Let's dive in there. Uh, the images. What what was what inspired the look of Mudbound? I just watched the movie again last night, uh, which is the first time I've seen it on the small screen. I saw it in the theater, actually, before that. And so, uh, you know, always interested to see how a DP's work translates, you know, 
in the digital realm, I guess. But uh, yeah, so we did look at other films. So like for me, like the visual art world has always been my inspiration in like you know creating kind of images for the screen. And so for me, inspirations were there's an artist named Whitfield Lavelle who does a lot of tone on tone paintings. A temporary artist. There's a sculptor I love named Mary Frank who does a lot of things that unite bodies and landscapes. And then Rachel had like Dorothea Lange and all these old WPA photos. So we really kind of worked from there and wanted the film to feel very kind of candid, very kind of like like honest in a way and another um thing i love i love um les blank who does these documentaries he done this like this documentary called the truth according to, to lightning hopkins so you know we looked at that and like wanted the film to have a very kind of m- moving at the speed of life feel so mm-hmm. it doesn't feel presentational it doesn't feel stagey which can be you know the catch with a lot of uh period pieces but we wanted to move at the speed of life and feel honest you know and yet it's i wouldn't call it like a verite thing i think it's a it's aesthetically beautiful mm-hmm. uh you know working uh i don't know what your budget was but like were there limitations that, that absolutely yeah we yeah. shot this film in 29 days for 10 million dollars so this is an indie film that no one realizes is an indie film yeah and you know and that was because Rachel was able to work so fast and use a lot of lighting and you know a big you know problem was basically we shot natural sharecroppers cabins so like a lot of the challenge was balancing like the inside versus the outside and mm-hmm. so she actually had to cut holes in the ceilings of these cabins to be able to put lights like in the roof of these things mm-hmm. so that you know the, the 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 value difference wasn't so great between the exteriors and interiors and just really you know making these characters feel like they're of the world and I really love to let actors move through the space and I don't like blocking that kind of inhibits kind of their their, their flowing and that's all dependent on having a DP that's willing to be flexible with lighting and being able to like work with you so that the actors have maximum freedom that the actors are able to kind of do their best work mm-hmm. uh, talk about the landscape and just the locations uh, how that informs character for you and with this project and maybe how you know uh, it would be a question for your actors. I often ask uh, actors, how does the landscape inform your performance and, and and things like that? Because environment is interesting when it comes to making films. Yeah, so, and, so in this case, we shot 26 days uh, on a sugar plantation about two hours outside New Orleans. And so that, you know, the fact that it was an actual working plantation, I think, served to really centralize us and keep everybody in it. You know, because Rachel and I want to have these 360 views, that means the production couldn't be, like, near us. And so the trailer, the trailers that we did have and, like, all that base camp had to be, like, a couple miles down the road, which meant the actors, like, really stayed on set. Like, no one was going back and forth. No one was, you know, seeking comfort or going to AC. Like, mm-hmm. everyone really much stayed on, pretty much stayed on set, which I think helped the rhythm and the flow and just helped the mood and we're all kind of suffering together and then we shot two days in Budapest, Hungary and we shot, that's where we shot the tank battles and we shot the village scenes and so that informed us because you know it was one of the few cities that wasn't like destroyed in World War II so all the architecture was there and just like the feeling is different it's like a little grayer we wanted that to feel different than the um, American part of the story and mm-hmm. we shot a day actually with a, is a, diff, is a DP named uh, Richard Rutkowski who shot the um, B-25 sequence with me out in Long Island we shot at a, a World War II museum mm-hmm. And so we just got a B-25 plane and shot that stuff against green. So I'd say the locations overall really served to kind of force the actors into, like, you know, proximity with each other and force them to kind of, like, stay in the material. So, for example, even, like, shooting, like, like, like the tank scenes in Budapest, we shot natural tanks. So it's a very hot, dark space, which is great because it necessarily limits the angles. Mm-hmm. And so you're really having this kind of um, completely subjective point of view. So when you're in the tank, you're in it as Aronzel would feel. When you're in the plane, you're in it as Jamie would feel it. This very kind of, like, vulnerable, um, small piece of humanity that's kind of mismatched, kind of jammed into this huge metal object. And mm-hmm. so I 
think all that comes across. And part of the camera language that we really wanted to pay attention to was, was that of subjective. Like, it's these different narrators with different points of view. So when we're with Henry, we see the land as Henry sees it. So for, when we're with Hap, we see it as Hap sees it. For example, Henry's one of the only characters we shot against Green, you know, because mm-hmm. he sees it as verdant. He sees it as opportunity. He sees it as commerce. Whereas Hap, we shoot him more against Brown. You know, it's about drudgery. It's like futility. Mm-hmm. And so just all those kind of things that serve the camera language. And, you know... Um, for example, in building Ronzel and Jamie's relationship, it was important that that not go too saccharine sweet. And so, you know, we started out, you know, the blocking was like them not touching. And then when they are in the truck together, they're not looking at each other. And they slowly begin to look and we shoot it like, you know, this kind of stacky way. But because they're not looking, it creates this kind of like distance. And then by the time we get to the barn, you know, then we start to move into like handheld, like overs, like in the very last barn scene. So the camera language tells a story of intimacy, for example, in that whole sequence of that of those guys' relationships. So just, you know, with a cinematographer, with your production designer, with your costumer, you're just always looking to kind of like let everything be telling the story, you know, and mm-hmm. let, you Absolutely. know, let it be telling the unsaid versus like, you know, just visual storytelling. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for drilling in on all of that. Yeah. Uh, you know, I was curious if working in the period realm on Bessie prepared you for this in any way. And also, uh, you know, $10 million is a tight budget for a movie like this, obviously. So I don't yeah. even – a question I had was did you feel like you were scaling up making this movie? But maybe not because it's all the same. Yeah, this is a smaller budget than Bessie actually. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So for me, I think in terms of like the um, scope of it, it felt very huge because we were telling, you know, like a war story kind of baked into like a family drama. And so that piece of it was different. But I think like the thing that'll best me, that Bessie prepared me for is like the choreography of it all. You mm-hmm. know, a dance scene and a war scene are similar and that is people, it's, it's just people doing the same moves over and over. It's everyone being very clear. And the camera is the thing that becomes dynamic, that makes it feel like chaos. But it's all very choreographed. And mm-hmm. so in that way, I feel like it's the same. And then just working with like extras, like with Bessie, that was the first film where I had like huge numbers of background. And even with them, I was kind of like tiling them in camera. In this film, we didn't have that many more background. And so it was like how to like populate several fields of people, you know, mm-hmm. when you only have maybe like 30 people. And so it's about, you know, a lesson in, you know, um, shooting to camera, like telling the story and being able to kind of like um, be inventive with um, the way you kind of like um, construct portraits and things that do many things at once. So just a simple thing is like, you know, driving the car toward the camera while kids are playing in a yard, while people are chopping in a field and gives a feeling of like, you know, this big expanse of life mm-hmm. when maybe it's only like 15 people. And so yeah. I think Bessie prepared me for that in a way because we had to, you know, be even that, you know, we had to kind of like scale down, you know, the numbers that we could have. And so it's a way that I'm used to working. It's with mm-hmm. Mudbound. Is that the same thing, how to populate a world with, you know, very little. And even sure. like that, that town scene, you know, it's like, you know, the production value starts with location. So we fought for that town location because just by having a street they can see down, you can kind of communicate this idea of being behind enemy lines. Mm-hmm. Whereas if we had done like the easy thing, which might have been to shoot at a general store that was right on the plantation, you don't get that feeling of danger. And mm-hmm. so just a small choice like that about location mm-hmm. then can like activate an entire sequence and give Ronzel this kind of like long, scary march, you know, to get home so that we're more worried about him on this town street than we are him, you know, with things blowing up behind him. Mm-hmm. And yeah. so, um, and so, yeah, you just really have to have a great team. And David Bomb, our production designer, have to give him credit for that because he was able to kind of use what was there in the town and supplement it. And then by strategically putting people, like by putting a wagon outside, you then like make it this other world, you know, yeah. so with no VFX, with, you know, with just like 
we're able to practically in camera like achieve a lot of kind of scale for not a lot. That gives me like film school flashbacks. I just yeah. remember like shooting a scene and there was it was like a you know like a, a restaurant scene or something. We didn't have a lot of people to populate the scene, mm-hmm. so you just kind of move people the back of their chair up to the frame, and it looks like they're having yeah. dinner with someone. He's over like dirty here, up the frame, exactly up the frame. That's yeah. right. Yeah, yeah. And then and then sound design. So I had a great yeah. like post production team. Um, like Nancy Allen's a music editor. Um, Damien Volpe, all the guys at Harbor, Rob. Um, Oh my God, Tony. So all those guys are like, you know, they're, they're the same sound design team I worked with on Bessie. Mm-hmm. So I knew that they could bring, you know, all that kind of like ability here. And so in, they're into like using sound non-literally, which I'm interested in. And so then the sound design becomes a layer. And then the score, um, this woman named Tamara Kali did my score. Yeah. And she also did a song for Bessie and then was, is, was in Pariah. So for me, it's about finding kind of like artists that are interesting and bring them back again and again because then you know you kind of keep improving on what you tried the last time yeah Yeah. absolutely um actually speaking of film school what was your film school experience like um so i went to nyu it was great in that i had never touched a camera before but you know it was like challenging that it was like trial by fire so my learning curve was like very steep so like a lot of the kids had either been to art school before studied you know um um cinema studies or in some form and for me I was getting it all at once I was getting okay here's the references and context and here's the technical side go you know so I made several horrible weekend short films you know and then you know you get critiques so I think the biggest thing about films was it teaches you like how to be critiqued you know mm-hmm. and, and it's just kind of like you know it's kind of like a brutal trial by fire but it's great in that everybody touches every piece of equipment and you know everyone is forced to make their own film so it's easy to critique and you realize you know versus when it's you and you're little sony you know camera like in your living room trying to make something happen so Mm -hmm. um so it's great in that way but it was challenging also for that same reason and for me it was about like i didn't have any kind of pedigree or connections and so film school like nyu was the way i first was able to get access even to just like internships you know it was just like a way to be able to work for free whereas you know if i hadn't had that or hadn't had that cover letter you know I couldn't have gone on, a, you know, to get someone's coffee or make copies for somebody. Like, right. So, yeah. Exactly. Uh, what were your inspirations going into film school? What What brought you to film school in the first place? Why? What? For me, it's funny. Like, I'd, I'd applied to the School of Dramatic Writing, and I applied to the film production program, and I figured I'd get into the writing, but not into the film, because I'd never done film. But um, for me, it was like writing that kind of drew me to it, this idea that you could kind of, like, make a story and then kind of keep ownership of it and then bring it to life was something like that was attractive to me. And then I think the thing I discovered is like I really love actors and working with actors and that's where I really get get energized. It's like writing is like a lonely sport. And then but when you're directing, you're dealing not only with all your kind of technicians, but you're also dealing with actors and the actors are the ones who are vulnerable and want to play and have fun. And so I get turned on by that. And then editing can be like lonely too. It's you and your editor. So for me... Um, the writing drew me to it, but I think the working with actors is a thing that like really kind of got me um, hooked. You know, yeah. got me excited about it. Well, regarding the writing, um, I wanted to talk about about the adaptation for mm-hmm. Mudbound. Uh, you know, specifically structure. You know, I never read the Hillary Jordan novel, but uh, talk to me about finding the right struggler, uh, finding the right structure, as well as you know, juggling multiple narrators is like got to be a tightrope walk with a screenplay right so like talk to me about that the whole process yeah so for me so mudbound came already in a script form Mm -hmm. so writing virtual williams had done the first draft of it and so i went back so i read his script and usually i hate everything i read but this script i thought okay there's some there there this is interesting that prompted me to go back and read the book Mm -hmm. and so each character talking that's a conceit of the novel you know Mm -hmm. and so it's not 
necessarily a new idea, like Isabel Wilkerson does in Warmth of Other Suns. Like, there's other other writers have done it, like in nonfiction too. So for fiction, you know, it's not inter- it's not a new idea, but it's interesting in that finding the balance to me is the hard thing, and then also like how to create kind of like empathy. So you what works in novelistic form isn't harder to translate on screen because how do you get the audience to like invest in each worldview? Like mm-hmm. how do you get the audience to, like invest in each char- character and not just cling to one and be annoyed while, while anyone else is talking. And so that, so for me, my approach was to really focus like on the Jackson family. And I didn't want this to be like another film where like, you know, one family is serving the other. And like, you know, in the book, a lot of the drama centers around this piano. And, the, and so Laura plays the piano and it's discovered that the little girl, Lily Mae, can sing. And so they kind of bond around that. And, and, and that was, you know, in the first draft. But for me, I wanted their connection to be a little darker, you know, in their symbiosis, you know, in that, you know, the two sons are linked via trauma. And so that was interesting. And the two husbands both shared the sense of disinheritance. And I found that interesting, like one who literally has title to the land and one, you know, Hap Jackson, who you could say is is, is indeed like uh, entitled to it, you know. Mm-hmm. And then the two women, they're women who are kind of told by their husbands what to do and how to do it, where to spend the money and where not. And they're both disobedient. So that was kind of my way in by making the Jacksons equal. Then you could have this kind of interplay between the two families and they could be this dark mirror of each other mm-hmm. versus it being them, you know, um, connecting around something that was purely circumstantial, you know. And so um, so my approach was to write, you know, new material for the Jacksons, like write, rewrite their voiceovers so that they weren't just like, you know, what's already happening, but that they had a philosophy, to, a, a philosophy to them. So Hap's whole monologue, um, what good is a deed? So that's like original to the book, original, you know, wasn't in the first script, but it's important to give Hap context with this land. Like he didn't just come with the cabin. He has his own dreams. And although circumstantially they're kind of locked into the orbit, you know, with McAllen's, they, they, they have their own kind of trajectory that they're aiming for. And same thing with like, Florence, you know, for example, a scene where, you know, she's going to care for the kids. So to me, the dramatic tension of that scene is not that it's a rainy, slippery night ride, but the tension in that scene is like the cognitive dissonance that Florence feels about doing the very thing she said she'd never do. And so then suddenly like a scene is like more alive, it's more activated. And so I wrote that monologue. I remember my mother blue, Mm -hmm. you know, saying how she didn't see her mother that often because she was working because then when she walks in the door and Laura's like, what is she doing here? We know that, well, hell, Florence doesn't want to be there either, you know, and so then there's a tension, but then they can, you know, come to see each other or relate as mothers at least, you know, but still there's like the darkness where, you know, when Pappy's kind of threatening her, you know, Laura's not running in to help her, you know, like Laura's not a savior, you know, Laura's getting what she needs out of this, you know, moment, but she's not necessarily Florence is like staunch defender. So those are choices also that were made, you know, in the in the editing room. So like I wrote like a lot of voiceover in the edit and I wrote um and, and we cut a lot of voiceover that was originally scripted because it just felt like, you know, it was telling us what we're already seeing mm-hmm. and I just believe that the audience is smart and so I'd rather trust the audience to kind of make their own connections and to make their own investment versus being kind of like um explained to, you know, or shoved information at. Sure. And so, um, and my editor, I should mention, is Michael Kamitsuna, and she was brilliant, and I should, I should cut Parai, and I knew that it was really going to be an editing feat to put this film together yeah. in a way that avoids all the kind of tropes and pitfalls of, you know, yeah. voiceover. It's, like, hard to, to do voiceover like, one character. Exactly. So the six, you know, Mako really helped find, like, thematic links, you know. 
So, for example, we intercut Hap breaking his leg with Ronzel in battle. And th- that right. wasn't originally scripted that way, but it created this psychic link. And Jamie, we intercut his his dogfight with the girls with, like, whooping cough. So it wasn't originally like, scripted that way, but it created this thematic link. So, again, everything's not so circumstantial. It's not episodic. Everything, you know, it gets back to the theme of people fighting on their own individual fronts. Yeah. Right? I was going to ask if there was ever any thought given to, like, just narrowing the uh, perspective at all, just just to kind of, I guess, make it easier on yourself as a writer or what have you. But uh, a story like this, a book like that, I guess you just can't do that. I mean, it's these multiple perspectives, and it has to, you have to just figure out how to best do that, right? Yeah, it's just like how to, you know, I think like when you start to think about thematic links versus yeah. just like chronology or linear things. And, for example, there are things Martha didn't edit. So, for example, the whole moment where um, Jamie and Laura get together – Originally, that was supposed to happen, you know, um, kind of after, actually, I'm sorry, before Pappy says, I know about you two. And in the edit, Michael's like, what if Pappy says, I know about you two, and then they do it? And I was like, oh, my God, that'll never work. It doesn't make sense, da da because these guys tell Ronzel about the baby. And she's like, let me just try it. And so she did it, and it activated that love scene. So then, like this kiss becomes very dirty because it becomes very subversive because, you know, they're doing it anyway. Mm-hmm. Like Pappy said, I know about you two, and they do it anyway. And so that then elevated that. So I think just, you know, the edit is definitely like a rewrite, you know, of the script. And yeah. as a director, you're constantly kind of like just being honest about what's happening in front of you and trying to make it work. And I should mention um, Michael Boyd, who's my costume designer on this, and which is a huge part of it because, you know, the, the the characters start to have themes like Jamie's in darker colors, Henry's in like noble colors, you know, and like all that tells a story without saying much. And Michael did the costumes on Bessie. So that's like another mm-hmm. way that Bessie kind of paid off because I was able to work with this guy who I knew could do a lot of a little. Michael comes with his own truck of clothes <laughs> and just makes it happen. And even my makeup artist, Angie Wells, I met her on press tour for Bessie. Because you oh, see, wow. do my personal makeup. And I was like, oh, you can come and run a department. So <laughs> it's about, you know, kind of in creating this very like naturalistic look for this film where I didn't want people to feel like made up. So Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Uh, the author, is, I believe she's planning a sequel to that novel, um, which focuses on Franz in Germany. Uh, would you be interested in coming back to these characters? No, I'm sure she's going to find somebody else for that. And honestly, that ending, that was Virgil Woods' ending. Yeah. Hillary's ending wasn't like that. Yeah, so exactly. I don't know that she was originally planning that, but now she's adapting to Virgil. And so I'm sure, you know, they'll find somebody great for that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, how do you feel about the Netflix partnership? Uh, you had a number of choices in front of you almost a year ago in Sundance. Well, I didn't really have a number of choices. Like, that's the mythology of it. Is it? it? Okay. Yeah, nobody made offers on this film. Like, people might have been interested, but not a single offer came through. You know, it was like Netflix that first, like, bought us, you know, and, you know, bought us for what we were worth because they could have lowballed us given that there were any other offers on the table. So then when you read that Annapurna had a deal out there you, or no, that's an not, offer out there, none of that's true? That's actually not okay. true. Yeah, and uh, Annapurna can call me and show me the offer they put out there. Okay. No, no one had put offers on this film before Netflix did, you know, and is, you know, going into the festival, we had a lot of interest and people wanted to see the film early and we wouldn't show it early and then mm-hmm. we cut to Netflix where no one's bidding on it. And so, um, yeah, no, Anna Pointer, A24, none of that's true. Nobody put an offer. Um, I think that for me, I'm grateful to Netflix because if not for them, this film wouldn't be seen yeah. because Norther Studio trusted it. Norther Studio wanted to put the money into marketing it and to put it out there. So Ted Sarandos had the vision to see that this film was important, that people were smart enough and ready for this to uh, put it out there. So I'm grateful to them for it. And, you know, going in this, my previous experience with Netflix had been with Pariah in a way. So mm-hmm. even though Pariah got picked up by Focus Features, you know, it had a 
small theatrical release, but people didn't really discover Pariah until it was on Netflix. You know, like mm-hmm. most people who have seen it have only seen Pariah on Netflix. And the same thing with this one with Mudbound. You know, you just want your work to be seen. And so this is like the greatest possible reach. So, mm-hmm. you know, with this, we have like a day, we had a day and date release. So it's in theaters and it's on Netflix, but it feels like it just kind of compressed the thing that often always happens with like indie films anyway. Mm-hmm. Well, tell me about the Sundance experience for you. That, Like I said, uh, was almost a year ago, you were up there. The new edition is kicking off this week or next week. And, uh, yeah, I just actually was speaking earlier today with Luca Guadagnino about his experience because a lot of the films in the you know Oscar race this year came out of Sundance. I so even Get Out, they had the surprise yeah. screening, so it's really interesting. Uh, what was your experience like there? You know, Sundance for me is this, like this you time know around, because you had had you been before? Yeah, been, yeah, yeah, you yeah, were, yeah, yeah prior, prior, right? Yeah, yeah prior premiered there, thought. and then prior the short and was the short there. film, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, no, so I mean, that's for that reason, Sundance is always kind of like a special place for me. It's like where I started and it was like the first institute that kind of like, you know, supported me as an artist. Mm-hmm. So, you know, being there this time around, you know, is is good. It's like nerve wracking because when you're there with the film, it's like the audience's first response to it. It's the critic's first exposure to it. And, you know, our Sundance went, you know, better than you could have imagined, you know, up until like no one bidding on it. But I mean, just like in terms of like the critical response, in terms of like the audience response, like that's the unknown. And so... You know, when your first audience is like, yes, we like this, and when the first reviews come in and it seems to be going well, like, that's stuff you can't control because it's Mm -hmm. all subjective. So when that happens, you're happy. And then, you know, the commercial thing then hopefully comes later. But, yeah. What do you think of the crop of movies that came out of there? I mean, there's Big Sick, uh, Your Film, Call Me By Your Name, Get Out. Uh, Patty Cakes was there. Patty Cakes. Yeah, Patty Cakes was bid on. There's bidding with Patty Cakes. Yeah, yeah there was. <laughs> the Wound, which is a foreign film from South Africa. Uh, a couple, you know, Docs always do well out of there. Um, you know, what do you think about that crop of films that came out and are still doing well in the award season? Yeah, I mean, it's fine. Like, in my opinion, I think it's great that, like, you know, a festival, you know, can really kind of like shape the conversation around films. And Mm -hmm. I'm glad that, you know, I think it used to be more kind of industry centric when it's great that like, you know, this festival and other festivals are increasingly becoming like bridges and becoming kind of like tastemakers in a way Mm -hmm. for uh, the general public that people actually pay attention and people actually watch, you know, and so it just creates um, a culture. I think in a way keeps alive kind of like a culture of cinema watching and cinema critique and cinema going, you know, and doesn't let smaller things kind of die on the vine or smaller things like not be seen. Yeah. And it's interesting too, because it seems like you know, movies rarely survive like the full year where you're still talking about a Sundance movie. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's like maybe one a year, yeah. but that there were so many this year. It's just really cool. So yeah, it's good programming. Shout out to Cooper. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, I also just watched your episode of Philip K. Dick's Electric Dreams. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, I haven't seen any of them, but I, I realized you had directed one, and I figured I should watch that. And mm-hmm. it was uh, fascinating. Also, uh, loosely, very loosely based on the Hanging Stranger mm-hmm. short story. Uh, talk about that and working in the world of Philip K. Dick. Yeah, I've wanted to do it for a while. So um, I was doing, I did a Philip K. Dick adaptation like a while back with Issa. And so I was, you know, Martian time slip. And so this was great because, you know, that didn't work out. But Issa called me and said, like, hey, like, come do this. And I was like, of course. And so sci-fi has been a thing I've been trying to get into for a while. So it's great to do it. And it's just, you know, because you can actually kind of say more in science fiction, actually do more mm-hmm. and be more pointed in a way because, you know, you're saying, it's not us quite it's not now quite people i think can like um i think people have a greater critical distance and they can see themselves maybe in a way where in a weird way you can go further you know sci-fi and i wrote i adapted kill all others um 
is like right before the election. Like I finished it like a week after the election results, and mm-hmm. so it was insane. So it was a it was a, you had a lot perfect. To write about. It was a, I did. It was a perfect place to put my energies, and it was like I I wrote it, you know, during like watching this campaign where I felt like this guy was saying, you know, unbelievable things, and it just felt like there's no one else hearing this, there's no one else reacting, and then the pundits would be reacting to the wrong things or asking the wrong questions, and so um you know I really got to write this in a response to a moment where it felt um like all was lost and mm-hmm. so yeah is uh it's cool that the anthology world can allow you know a filmmaker who's probably busy with other mm-hmm. things to come in and knock off a, an episode like that i mean is tv something you want to dive into more is yeah i've been trying to do tv for a long time as yeah. well you know like i remember like a while back i was um i worked on a pilot for hbo viola davis and that didn't go and then i worked on a thing with shonda rhimes for effects and that didn't go and then before then i had a spec pilot around about nashville they didn't quite go. So, like, I've been trying to break into TV before, like, TV was cool. So, it's, <laughs> to me, I see it as, like, a bigger canvas. And as someone who's interested in characters, TV is, like, gives you that more novelistic deep dive yeah. because you don't have to close every um, loop at the end of each kind of line. You can always kind of leave it open and really kind of grow with the person. So, I'm yeah. excited. And, um, yeah, we'll see what happens. Something like Mudbound could have an interesting life as, like, a longer, you know, presentation you know if it was like a mini series or something because it's such a dense piece of work you know so that's interesting okay. uh your next movie uh i think it'll be your next movie mm-hmm. this the story of uh gloria steinem and the push for equal rights um is it, it, very potent time for that kind of a project mm-hmm. obviously so i just wanted to ask you what are you hoping to add to the overall discourse with that project well, I'm interested in, in focusing more on the failure to ratify the ERA, right? And mm-hmm. I'm also interested in, like, the messiness of feminism and how some women are left behind or some women are celebrated, you know, who becomes quoted, who becomes erased. And so I'm interested in getting to the cracks of the movement and kind of, like, how this kind of coalition of people, you know, tried to do something, didn't quite make it. And and I think it's, like, you know, something that is still being struggled with, you know, in terms of, like, how to kind of create change, how to form coalitions. I feel like that's the thing we're still figuring out so yeah yeah well good luck with that and uh definitely check out everybody mudbound you can do it easily i know you can just go on your computer or go on your apple tv or chrome or whatever these things are called and uh watch mudbound on netflix it's one of the year's best movies and look i really hope uh, you get some really good news at the oscar nominations next week so good luck thanks yeah and watch on your laptop because if your tv has that smart setting <laughs> it looks like hell so, yeah <laughs> and thank you uh, d reese for coming on the show really appreciate it cool thanks for having me Violence is part and parcel of country life. I learned how to stitch up a bleeding wound, load and fire a shotgun. My hands did these things, but I was never easy in my mind. Way down in the water. I held his heartbeat in my head. Way down in the water. All that time he was gone, I only prayed for him. Over there, I was a liberator. People lined up in the streets waiting for us. Sometimes I actually miss it. Yeah, me too. I'm coming back from the fire. You're the one I always talk about. I own and I own a car, so the only way to get up from under that foot. Crawling back from the dirt. I don't want you working for them. I won't be working for them. I'll be working for us. Coming back from the fire. When I was to fight for my country to come back and find a head and change a bit. I don't know what they let you do over there, but you in Mississippi now. You use the back door. Boy, you found trouble. Jamie saw in a different way. And when his eyes were on me, I felt like I was no longer invisible. I seen you sniffing after him. Maybe Henry is too thick to notice, but I ain't. 
You better open your eyes, big brother. You're so busy worrying about yourself and your farm, you can't even see your own wife is miserable. They work this land all they lie. I used to walk away from the fight. I know more. This land that never would be theirs. You don't need to go, Jamie. I can't stay here. They worked until they sweated. You'll be okay. They sweated until they bled. Oh. They bled until they died. Died clawing at the heart. Brown back. That would never be theirs. When I think of the farm, I think of mud. I dreamed in brown. Way down in the water, far away from any soul.